statecraft isn't just is statecraft as technological not just sort of weaponized but you know it's it's digital warfare it's psychological warfare and it's an awareness of how those weapons work and even at the most sort of diffuse level is there a sense that we can take up take up arms in that sense finding a way to make these new technologies work in the people's favor and i guess that's part of it too in terms of how ideas circulate culturally is it so terrible to have an ask communist advertising kit kats Welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. In this episode, Jack's gone to bed with a headache, so it's time to misbehave. To really run wild, I've popped open the good schler from the cabinet and I've invited around my naughtiest friend, Matt Cahoon, to talk about post-capitalism and left melancholia. That's right. We work hard. We play hard. Matt, also known by his blogging alias Xeno Gothic, is the author of Egress on Mourning, Melancholy and Mark Fisher, and editor of Post-Capitalism, The Final Lectures of Mark Fisher. These two books build upon Fisher's legacy and apply it to the present, a world where the feeling of being stuck is increasing at a dizzying and exponential rate. Putting together a sad schlurpie is no easy feat, so if you want to chip in on our Patreon at patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party, you'll get access to some extra content, gratitude, and unsolicited recipes for what I call a cheeky schlur, which involves putting schlur, vimto, and peanut butter in the bin and leaving them there until they get thrown away. Enjoy the episode! One thing I want to get out of my system right at the very beginning is that me and you went to school together, and that feels... (laughs) Doesn't that feel dreadful to say on a podcast? Doesn't that? It's like such a craven admission. I feel, I feel awful. Do you know what I mean? I think it's, I think it's quite wonderful that we, we've. Well, if only because we've 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 both diverged. I think and gone in these very. Oh well, at least have especially I've me having an awareness of what you've got on to do, and then now being in this position where we can justify mm. talking together on a podcast is quite a lovely turn of events, I think, in a weird sort of way. No one could have predicted anyone who went to our school would have taken either of the turns that they did, but <laughs> well, for exactly. them to then <laughs> loop back around and make a perfect circle where we're in a podcast together somehow united, <laughs> it's 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 sick really yeah if you consider the school we went to it's dreadful truly you know do you remember i bought a piece of artwork off you yes yes do you know i've got it i've got it here i I thought i could see it over your shoulder i was gonna mention it (laughs) yeah useless to include this in a podcast but i've still got this (laughs) this was the first piece of art i ever bought in my life 
I still have it's the it. first piece of art I ever sold in my life. Oh yeah, you were excited as well because there yeah. was this rumor in the school that you'd become like incredibly famous and incredibly rich. <laughs> were you aware of this? Vaguely, and just kept quiet about it because I don't know. Keep because it got you sales. Yeah, um, and then you were the only sale for the like the <laughs> for about ten years because I didn't know you at all. But someone was saying. Yeah, he's like become like a photographer who's made his art and he's like a millionaire now. And I was thinking, the photographs must be pretty good. Right? They're probably going to be pretty good if he's become a millionaire. But if he's just in school, probably going to be worth a lot more <laughs> if I come in on the ground floor now. An investment, like a beanie baby. Yeah, but I never sold it on. Oh. I, uh... One of a kind. Well, I smashed it. I don't know if you noticed, but the glass is smashed, so. <laughs> I'd be surprised if it was fully intact all these years yeah. later, though. I never replaced the glass, so it's a little bit warped, so I think it can't be sold. <laughs> but I love it still. It's nice. Oh, <laughs> bless you. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> So I've been reading uh, your two books, Egress on Mourning and Melancholy and Post-Capitalist Desire. And I think it does a good job of connecting capitalist realism, which a lot of people are very familiar with, like a very well-known influential idea, to uh, left melancholia, living under capitalist realism. There isn't an idea. It's not even that there's an idea that we're not sure if it can succeed it's like an idea that prevents the imagination even from grasping hold of something for people to rally around. A lot of us are sitting in a place, especially after 2019, where people know something needs to come and strike through. But, I mean, speaking for myself here, my understanding of what leftism means comes almost entirely from the 20th century, a landscape that cannot be mapped onto now. I know that something new needs to come along and replace that and I, and as much as I can be radicalised to thinking well Parliament can't do anything Westminster can't do anything there needs to be like an overthrow power needs to move from some people to some other people but I don't really know what I want these new people to do even if 20 people marched up to Westminster with a tank and took it over I can't quite say what I know I want them to do beyond you know uh, proletariat have access to the means of production but what does that mean in the 21st century what are the ideas that pin all that together and I found this was like a very prescient time for me to be reading this book because I think like a lot of people this is precisely the place I am in my own mm -hmm. feeling of personal stuckness to what extent is defeating left melancholia the the big project for a lot of left-wing thinkers and yourself how central is that to the project as you described it very well, I think, just there is that the, the, how is the how do we welcome in the new or even what is the new in terms of politics or culture, or whatever else? And I think part of the issue that is that there's lots of different ways of looking at that question. So left melancholia is kind of one way of doing that, I think. The, the very concept of left melancholia goes back to Walter Benjamin almost 100 years ago. And then you have people like, uh, I mean, Mark Fisher writing about it, but also uh, Wendy Brown, um, who he drew on a lot. So it's this very persistent problem that the left feels like it has been repeatedly and persistently defeated or is always on the back foot. And I guess that part of the issue in a way is that, is that the best way of looking at things? In 2017, when my book Egress is for the most part set, that was kind of the unavoidable question because there was so much grief within that year, whether that's 
personally in terms of death of Mark Fisher or after Trump's election, Jeremy Corbyn losing the um, the election here or, or Grenfell. There was a terrorist attack. There were so many awful things that happened that year. But whilst we should definitely try and wrestle with our own sort of negative feelings, there's also, I guess, an attempt to twist that around and say, well, what's the... If, if we can say defeating left melancholy is kind of a negative project and that we want to vanquish something, but also there's a question of what do we want to produce. This question of what what is new and how does the new emerge is kind of the... Um, a question that Mark Fisher is very famous for, but which was all the rage sort of in continental philosophy around the 2000s. And Elaine Badiou had this argument that he called it uh, the crisis in negation. We're very capable of destroying the old, but not necessarily producing the new. So I guess that there's two sides to that question in a way is that if we how do we vanquish left melancholy is one thing and maybe that's even within our grasp because we're quite capable of moving on from things supposedly but where are we moving to um how do we you know encourage that kind of becomes the other side it's an interesting question because i think i agree with you that i mean my main interest in Mark Fisher's thinking is precisely that point that it feels something that's very prescient to maybe our generation. I think you're maybe a year or two older than me. I can't remember now. But I mean, at least for personally, I think the first time I ever voted in this country was for that fateful election when the Lib Dem coalition came in. And I think that there's not been any sort of political experience, at least maybe parliamentary democratic experience in my lifetime, where I felt there's been any sort of success or thing to grow from it. And I think that that's quite striking for this, a new a new generation of leftists that maybe has, can rally around Jeremy Corbyn in the present, but hasn't actually known any sort of success. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I think that it's a, it's a very prescient question, but it's also maybe the question for the left. In a way, this is maybe not even an answer to your question, because it's a very much an open question. But the various different ways that we can engage that question are in themselves like one way of exercising our imagination. Putting that question front and centre is maybe not a bad starting point. And I think that's how we need to understand a lot of these projects and things we're going to go on to talk about. They're just different vectors coming off from that central problem. As much as we don't know exactly what acid communism was going to be or everything that would have been entailed by that, I always feel, as someone who works in arts and culture, I always feel that people who do a lot of political writing really overstep what the influence of that can be. Because sometimes it feels like arts and culture doesn't necessarily influence. There's just a gatekeeper that allows the ideas of the time to rise to the top if they're already going to be popular. I guess I've been very wary of thinking that as much as it would really make me feel good and and powerful and useful. (laughs) (laughs) But it's an interesting point, though, because I think that art and culture does have a lot of influence but in a maybe a more diffuse sense than it's often suggested and maybe when you're in the sort of the thick of it and it's your day-to-day job I mean it's also been my day job for a long time of working in galleries and things that yeah you feel very impotent and that there's not really anything that's happening here that actually connects with the world that you're otherwise in I guess that's part of the question too what are the strengths of art and culture beyond that day-to-day infrastructure how can they be exacerbated or even encouraged to you know better shape our imaginations like it's an example i keep coming back to but i'm just kind of repeatedly astounded by the sort of terror and enthusiasm that marcus rashford sort of garnered over the last couple of months as a a footballer or a public figure a cultural figure you should say who's who's done more to challenge a political establishment than maybe some you know jobbing politicians can do though it's not the cleanest of examples and there's been a lot of unfortunate unfortunately toxic discourse around his sort of campaign for free school meals i think that that it's that kind of potential that you know raises a lot of questions around who gets heard from what 
position or what background or from from what you what we otherwise contribute to society as if to say that Marcus Rashford as a footballer is someone that maybe in our general classist nation shouldn't be taken so seriously maybe it's there's something to do with the, the argument he's making the issue that he's making an argument for that challenges a lot of assumptions and maybe kind of you know starts to rattle this framework that's maybe taken for granted illuminating kind of an agency that we tend not to give much mind to but which actually can be quite in a, in a word quite revolutionary at least in a, in, a, in a small way and i guess it's you know how do those things build up and um can contribute to wider movements i'm very much in the throes of a pessimistic worldview with regards mm. to all of this because reading through post-capitalist desire and having a very very loose understanding of what acid communism refers to i don't see how they um solve the the, the problems that are in capitalist realism. If capitalist realism is true and we've learnt that, you know, artistic dissent gets absorbed straight back into the supply chain or if someone speaks out against it, then, you know, a politician could do a press conference where, you know, Marcus Rashford shakes hands with an MP and goes, great job, you helped us get in touch with our true consciences. We will do a concession that goes halfway towards keeping 5% of children out of poverty. Then suddenly that opposition is deflated, especially in Britain where we seem to, like, have written the class structure on our DNA and like a good 70% of us will not let it go without a fight. If a new psychedelia infused new lifestyle with some revolutionary tendency were to appear, I just can't imagine they wouldn't be semi-absorbed into existing power structures, brought on, you know, loose women for a few interviews where either they'll be established as actually quite a boring part of existence and then products will exist and famous new acid communists will be doing adverts for Kit Kats within a month. Or they'll be maligned as completely fringe and then suddenly your uncle who's never heard of them is ringing you up to go, have you heard of these flipping lunatics? (laughs) Get rid of them, (laughs) national service. And then we'll see the pattern that we've seen carried out about any similar movement and the wheel marches forward and the earth gets hotter yeah this is like a big challenge i guess and maybe an unfair one can you give me anything to be hopeful about in in this (laughs) pessimism can you just make me happy and calm down uh no is the short answer but it's honest (laughs) but i think that's like it's that is capitalist realism Capitalist realism as a concept shouldn't be interpreted as some sort of derogatory thing that you throw at useful idiots. It's something that's within all of us. The fact that, uh, and it's something that the left arguably over its whole history has unfortunately kind of ratified for itself. Um, There's one of the major critiques of Marxism from the left from the 1970s, which is really influential for Mark Fisher, especially in a lot of that crowd, is from Jean-Francois Lyotard, who wrote this book called Libidinal Economy. And he makes this quite blatantly transgressive argument in there that Marxism is always already kind of limited by Marx's own love of critique. That, you know, capital was never finished. And even the bit that we do have is sort of thousands of pages and four volumes long or whatever. And Leotai kind of makes this argument that in in giving this sort of totalised view of capitalism and its structure, it's 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 almost it's almost Marx himself who blocks any way of thinking beyond it. There's that all sort of 
Warhead story about a one-by-one one map of, the, of a territory. Where well, What's the difference then between the critique and the actual system itself? And so Leotard has this very provocative argument that Marx kind of has this libidinal sort of obsession with capitalism that he never actually wants to eradicate it because that would put him out of a job, essentially. And, and he shrinks that argument down or maybe even updates it to have that sort of trickle down to the, 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 the modern proletariat. That, you know, who, who are these academic Marxists to say that, to quote Leotard directly, you know, that we can't enjoy swallowing the shit of capital, the, the polystyrene and the sausage pâtés. We love our pubs and our suburbs and these, you know, these, these things that capitalism has provided for us. You know, who wants to go back to being, you know, one of the peasantry? You, it's, it's as if to say that Marx, you know, that Marxism is this catch-22. But again, it's sort of to say that's a miserable place to, to really end up. And so, you know, what are we to do to actually... Yeah, as you, as you say, to, to push through to that outside. Is there even an outside? Is all we are capable of doing, the, the Blair years, this sort of gradualist reformism that we can only reform and we can only do it very slowly? You know, I guess that's part of it is that as much as the left has been defeated in, in many historical instances... Non, nothing that has been defeated has gone away. You know, this is this argument of um, that uh, Jacques Derrida makes around the spectre of Marxism. That even though we could argue that capitalism has ultimately succeeded following the the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain, it hasn't. You know, communism hasn't gone away. It lingers as this kind of rotten husk that is just always sort of in the periphery of capitalism's sort of conquests. But that very persistent presence, even if a rotten one, is better than nothing at all. So is there a way that we can actually, you know, use that kind of, that deadness to, you know, spread that rot around the system? Speaking of, you know, famous communists end up advertising Kit Kat, I guess that, you know, I always think of when Ash Sarkar was on TV, sort of on, on GMTV's telling Piers Morgan she was literally a communist. And as much as that became a meme, and arguably didn't really do much of anything in, the, in a sort of immaterial political terms, it did shake the conversation in this country and around the world in, in regards to what a communist position is, how you can even stand by that position, on such, you know, a public platform. And so as some you know, something as arguably quite subtle or even maybe even superficial in in one sense does actually have, I think, deeper consequences where you see more people identifying as literal communists. Even though it's very easy to easy to be cynical about it, there's some momentum that can be gained there. And I guess that that's the maybe the alternative to rather than vanquishing melancholy. Because I guess this is part of this further question around what Leotard calls a libidinal economy, that we can't allow capitalism to have the monopoly on enjoyment. What parts of capitalism that we do enjoy, because we obviously all enjoy parts of it, what parts of that can we emphasise and carry forwards and recombine with other principles rather than the opposite which is arguably that left liberal centrism of third wayism of blairism whatever else neoliberalism whatever you want to call it kind of does the opposite where it hollows out socialism so if that's what's happened in terms of uh, having a sort of ethical socialism as it's called where you have something like the national health service that we can hold up as a socialist institution that's nevertheless repeatedly gutted by privatization and whatever else that's kind of the modus operandi for the political establishment is there you know what's the opposite of that what are the more positive projects that are capable of you know using those same tactics for other ends and again it's a long list of open questions but there are i think some things to be hopeful towards part of what's tough about about it is that they're not often spectacular as much as we have to sort of try and vanquish melancholy we can't then yeah do the opposite so there's a feeling of of, of stuckness and a lack of new ideas and that presents a, a left melancholic person like myself 
with two poles complacency and militancy complacency is complicity and it's you know inertia and that's just inherently unappealing and militancy like if you were to take it in its most literal sense which is what if just loads of people got weapons and they just took power it isn't useful without positive conceptions of what they're doing and why they're doing it because firstly like in a chicken and egg problem you probably couldn't inspire a bunch of people to pick up guns and go and take over power in the first place if they don't really know why they're doing it or what they're doing it for and secondly if they were to manage to do it without quite knowing why well it'd probably make a real big mess of it so that's where we get to the quest for newness culture can't keep up with technology so we're being overstretched on our ability to come up with new ideas meanwhile the past is sort of coming up to meet us because the past is full of this massive jumble of ideas that we're still stuck with that we haven't necessarily all sorted through even things that are supposed to historically have gone away because they have lost are still hanging around you know from communism all the way up to fascism there's still people around flying the flags for these things and so we're stuck not having just a clear new idea that can unite people because the landscape is an absolute mess. Yeah, but I guess it's the... I want to add a point that I'm now maybe realising is undermining this whole attempt to make you feel better. But (laughs) I guess part of it is also that it is terrifying that a lot of these old supposedly vanquished ideas, Nazism being sort of maybe the, the, the most obvious, that you know, despite the Nazism being defeated in the Second World War, we kind of still see the, the cultural symbols and, and this sort of the, the ideology, yeah, re, re, always having a presence and sort of having this resurgence. And whilst that's kind of an, a product of this chaos, it's kind of also just a product of this a new kind of level of memory that we have. We've always had records of history, but I don't think we've ever had things be quite as well documented as we have in sort of very recent, sort of since the Industrial Revolution, where we have tech, you know, technology not only propels us forwards, but gives us a clearer and clearer view of where we've been. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right that, that um, the fact that, yeah, culture is, can't keep up with technology. And I guess that part of the thing with that is that we don't necessarily foresee how these things are used. So if we're talking about militancy and taking up weapons... I guess part of the issue is what, uh, how we conceive of those of those weapons in themselves. And if we're thinking of weapons, at least in, especially it, it, the dawn of the twenty first century, that statecraft isn't just is statecraft is technological, not just sort of weaponized, but you know it's it, it's digital warfare, it's psychological warfare, and it's an awareness of how those weapons work. And even at the most sort of diffuse level, is there a sense that we can take up take up arms in that sense, finding a way to make these new technologies work in the people's favour? I guess Facebook is a classic example, which is kind of seen, I think it's really interesting to see that um, Facebook's well, not quite 15 years old, and it's kind of gone from welcoming in this new world of connectivity, of, of kind of new new levels or new senses of community, in a way, and, 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 and connection with our fellow human beings, as it were, which is great. But then we also see this flip side that's kind of becoming increasingly soured where you see Facebook as being just a you know a tool for the worst oppressions of, of information especially and I guess that's part of it too in terms of the talking about before in terms of how ideas circulate culturally is it so terrible to have an acid communist advertising Kit Kats take um Diego Maradona, who I guess just passed away yesterday, half the tributes that I saw on Twitter for Maradona were about his politics, about being a sort of working class hero, being an ardent socialist. It's interesting to think that, you know, what that that part of his life, his legacy, his biography, 
has been reaffirmed at the time of his death and has been affirmed in a lot of communities. Sort of, uh, I think there was sort of pictures of uh, murals to him in Naples and things being held up as this person. But it's probably fair to say that most people wouldn't know him as that kind of political figure. That's another example of being able to use these technologies, these things that we see as quite oppressive, like especially social media, as actually there being a, a way that we can use them to reignite interest in certain ideas. And I guess that's part of the, the, the thing with psychedelia for, I think, acid communism, is that it's, it's sort of taking that word very literally. It's the quote that's on Karl Marx's tomb in Highgate Cemetery and won't be able to remember it for verbatim but something like the the point isn't to just was it understand the world or whatever but the, the point is to change it which I think often gets interpreted as like an anti-intellectual praxis over theory but I think it's in that sense it's it's an innately psychedelic gesture that you have to make manifest what is in the mind and so I think that in a way it's that when we see with maybe Maradona just being a very recent example here's this idea of him that's in people's minds which might not be well known making those ideas and that reception of him manifest in these kinds of information networks may have more of an impact than we really give it credit to but again that's is is that just another form of complicity i guess one part of the question that always lingers over that is is any message no matter how radical that is spread by twitter a radical message is there like a an, a non-capitalist way of doing mass messaging that in a way that's the argument of the liberal economy these are how our desires are circulating Capitalism thinks it has the monopoly on desire. And so it circulates things like advertises chicken nuggets and new TVs and things like that. But there are other desires that can circulate through those systems. And I guess it's making them more visible. And it's uneven legible, I guess, is another way of putting it, is something that we can all do. Because, yeah, the alternative is there, there is no outside. The, 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 to go back to sending messages by a post is impotent, really in considering the world that we live in. That that lack of an outside to capitalism is both sort of depressing, but it does at least, you know, it, it, it makes the, the battlefield very clear. In knowing the battlefield, there's new potentials for actually concretizing our tactics and strategies, if, that's, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And I think I will go part of the way on the Maradona thing, because I was thinking in my head, who's like a comparable figure? And I remember Frida Kahlo, she became very apoliticised as a public figure after her death. Didn't Theresa May wear a Frida Kahlo thing to a, to Parliament once? And it's like, hang on, hang on, this is Frida Kahlo. Frida Kahlo was a communist. But maybe there just wasn't the mass messaging at the time to really circulate that. And she's just known as, I think she's just been lumped in the category of like a strong, powerful woman. And so other, other parts of her personal history and personal politics have just been shaved off of her collective memory. Um, when it comes to the idea that you could organise anything truly revolutionary through Twitter, I think I struggle with the idea, would it be good to have a communist advertising Kit Kat? I think that I bulk at. Like, that one's too <laughs> challenging for me. I don't know how much, how sincerely you meant it, but I think... No, I think that's probably very unlikely to ever happen. No, no, um, yeah. I'm not saying you know something I don't know. <laughs> no, but I mean, but I guess, but that, but that in a way is kind of useful, right? That it shows that there's a, there's a limit because these, mes these messages are circulating right now. And I guess that's what I mean in bringing up Ash Sarkar on Good Morning Britain, because that, that in a way to me feels like that's, that's as close maybe as we're capable of getting to a, a communist advertising Kit Kats. To someone of someone of that kind of politics to be on that kind of program is, is I think maybe that, not to say that that's, you know, that's her endorsing that televisual tabloid media. But it was a massive rupture and, that, and kind of, it, it, I think maybe it blasted a whole, I mean, it probably, you know, it also encouraged a lot of pretty reactionary 
think pieces of just how awful communism really is and going back and you know it's, it's all it's all stalinism and blah 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 but it's guess it's, it's recognizing that as much as these systems allow parts of capitalism to circulate more, more smoothly they also allow capitalism's enemies to circulate things more smoothly and it's that that capitalism cannot fully eradicate that's the specter of marx the specter of communism it can't quite get rid of that as much as it might try to and i think that's maybe the glimmer of hope they allow mass communication and also it is sold people the means to talk about whatever they want with people all across the world and some people could be plotting the downfall of capitalism through these mediums yeah 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 capitalism could literally monetize its own demise i think in in one respect that's part of what a lot of people are hoping for like what is it for what is it for Stormzy to be on the the pyramid stage at Glastonbury saying fuck Boris? That that's the kind of political messaging that we actually haven't seen in quite a while, I think. Because at least at that, you know, what a, a, a hugely popular rather than underground level. So it's that kind of influence that culture can have that I think was part of how Stormzy Stormzy's a huge because he sells records. So he's he's a capitalist in a very complicit sense that he makes, you know, he makes money. Well, I mean, that's probably not the best definition for capitalist, but your fame generates more fame. That sort of complicity, nevertheless, is used to challenge these fundamentals or this kind of polite day-to-day um, political norm that disturbs capitalist realism. But it could do with some more encouraging, maybe, would be Mark Fisher's point. I guess I just don't know what's being proposed to be done with the energy that's created by... So let's say Stormzy becomes a figurehead of like a massive subculture... That's, that's built around resistance and it's built around anti-authoritarianism and that becomes politicised. But, I mean, again, I'm thinking here with just 20th century history ideas of, like, what you do with energy is you mobilise people to get them into the streets and they use their bodies and they use their hands and they go into buildings or they get into places they shouldn't and they don't let those places go back and they occupy seats of power. But that wouldn't happen because if, if that were to happen, then our, the government would just become more authoritarian until that is crushed and then a, a, a successive government would go, gosh, wasn't that authoritarian version of this exact same ideology really bad? How about we go back to a liberal one where you can have all the free except doing that ever again but i guess that's it right that's where that's where we are so it's i guess it's not just a question of like if that happened would anything change but i think it's more the point that that can't happen not to say that Stormzy saying fuck boris at glastonbury is going to change the world i don't think Mm. anyone would be that naive but what's blocking that energy i guess that's part of it we can also still pay attention to new blockages that are having to be installed so i guess another example could be that memo that went out to by the Department of Education regarding that schools and universities couldn't include anything that could be described as anti-capitalist in their literature or on their curriculums. The fact that that even has to be said, I think maybe shows that there's some, I think maybe the, that there's an establishment that knows that things are kind of maybe, if not turning against them, there, but there is, a, there is a sort of new energy building. And where that energy is coming from, well, they can't ban songs or books anymore because everyone knows that that's a bad sign. That's a red flag. So they kind of will do this sort of bureaucratic imposition in schools as if to say that they think that schools are... Well, I guess that's part of the conspiracy theory, right? That universities are sort of max Marxist bastions that are shelling out ideological disruption. So that's you know, that's sort of what they've built up as this maybe this straw man. That's something that they can attack. But is it going to actually have any impact I don't think it will, personally, because I think that because the tide that is coming is fundamentally cultural. So I think that's not to say 
that. And I guess there's another part of it that it's not to say that a belief in this kind of cultural wave of dissent and discontent is the be all and end all, because it will take genuine strategizing and a lot of, you know, hard political thinking to actually decide, yeah, where to channel that energy and where to channel those bodies, whether that is in occupations or otherwise. I guess it's the point to emphasise that we can do both. And I think maybe part of it, at least for Fisher, was that the cultural element has been downplayed. The fact that Marxism is so associated with academia kind of also is, is sort of the, it shows the opposite side of its impotence. That is kind of a stereotype and that, and, and there is a shred of truth in it, that it has been sort of relegated to the academy. So how does that politics become reactivated in the public sphere as well? And how can those two things come together? Because that was part of the tension too from the 70s when you had like May 68 in France, where you had workers and students coming together for a protest movement that effectively shut down the French economy. I think it's the the actual makeup of that uprising is something that uh, a lot of people, but I think Mark Fisher especially, were particularly intrigued by. And how you could have that kind of cross, that, that kind of conversation across different groups, economic groups especially, um, how that could be encouraged and how that could happen again. Again, another open question. But I think, again, another important one, because it's a question that we don't really think about, or even think that it's even possible, because it did happen once, about 50 years ago. <laughs> is, there any, is there any possibility that it could happen again? So is it, can it happen again? Probably not. Why? And then there, there, there are your targets for, you know, for, for new thinking. Um, I'm pessimistic and impatient, and I want there to be action being taken. But mm. you'd struggle to pin me down on exactly what I think ought to be done, because I'm pessimistic, but I'm also impatient. Um, <laughs> we need a new big idea but it's not even even that is like too impatient it's working out why don't we have any new ideas what are the steps that need to be taken to come up with something radically new then it would be disseminated culturally and that would create the energy to do something but we can only really know what it is we want to do when there actually is an idea to direct our actions yeah i mean i think that's that's kind of the moment where i think we're, that we're in this question of whether the what is what is the new or what is new new things are happening all the time new new products new commodities are coming out all the time and that can work in our favor they can be that those new products those new signs those new things to desire can be new things to piggyback on with these ideas so that yeah we can force capitalism to further sort of engender its uh, further undermine itself but there are obviously plenty of obstacles to that and how the right navigates that in its own way. I mean, I guess the right does is it does the same thing. I mean, that's Trump's MO in a way. His his success as president, he links it explicitly to the success of the Dow Jones. As if to say, if the Dow Jones rises, then that's 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 better than any approval rating. And it works for some people. What sort of things can anti-capitalists piggyback onto can have that similar sort of effect of of creating a movement in the way that he did. Well, I guess the right know what their libidinal desires are, right? Whereas over here, we're holding podcasts trying to work out what we think about that whole. <laughs> but the, but they kind of but thing. that's there though, right? Because a podcast is like a desire to talk to people. It's a, hmm. it's it's a communal social desire. So I think we do. I guess that's partly it that we shouldn't. It's as much as being a being a white guy on a podcast is something that's easily ridiculed and there's very easy to be cynical about. And, and correctly so. Good, yeah. Well, yeah. There's <laughs> yeah. good reason for that. <laughs> But I think especially in lockdown, I mean, the fact that people sold out on, like Amazon was selling out of podcast microphones and setups and things like that. I don't think it just shows that people wanted to keep working on projects when people wanted to talk to each other. Mm. And that's kind of an important thing that 
that's that's kind of the tension of social media that in rejecting social media and podcasts and whatever else we're not just rejecting this this improved sociality where i can talk to you over the internet that you know that would never have been able to talk with this clarity and with mm-hmm. this sort of with this level of comfort before and that's something to be celebrated but you know it's it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater i guess is the one thing formulating this it's important that people recognize that capitalism has brought us things the nintendo switch is nice it looks nice there's fun stuff on there you don't have to deny that part of yourself just to get entry into the left for the left to be exciting or an exciting alternative to capitalism presumably there has to be something which is uniquely exciting about the left what can this new left movement offer that is not captured anywhere on amazon's black friday deals it becomes that chicken and the egg situation. Is it that the left needs something that's not on an Amazon Black Friday list? Or are these things precisely on Amazon Black Friday lists because they scratch a certain itch? Because the fact remains that even if you can go and get an Am- like a podcast kit for 50% off this Friday, the fact that that could then still be used to go and disseminate anti-capitalist ideas, I don't think that undermines that. I think maybe this is one way of uh, maybe attacking that leftist melancholy. If, if there is a way of doing it, the left should probably give itself more credit for what it already has and the history that it has. And the way, again, the kind of coming back to that sort of Maradona thing or, or even other, any other sort of figure like that, we are more capable now of sharing that history and making those kinds of arguments than we ever have been. The kind of argument that used to be sort of a truism that communism killed millions of people now comes back with, well, so does capitalism all the time. I I always think about it, it's kind of similar with my dad, who I think the last time I spoke to him about politics, he admitted that he voted UKIP and we didn't talk about politics for quite a while. But he also said that he liked Jeremy Corbyn. And I think I remember like in the the midst of the coronavirus, he's kind of taken, I mean, he's in his 60s now, but he's taken a lot of agency from actually having access to other kinds of information. He doesn't have to get everything received from me, as he usually would for my entire childhood from the Daily Mail. There are other places he can get information from very easily. And he does that. But then there's also the issue that he also starts to believe in a few conspiracy theories i think maybe at least it shows that that's the battle the battlefield is, is informational it's like if it's not a libidinal economy it's kind of an information economy that is nevertheless tied to our libidos and how we can have any sort of if not control but at least um, intervene in that space i feel like we all we, can, we can't take as much credit for our own worldviews as we like to think we can but if we can at least sort of find those cracks and have a certain vigilance regarding why we think the things that we do. I think that in itself is kind of a worthwhile endeavour. And that, we have to be vigilant about what can then come in, because <laughs> it's not all good. But it, that in itself, I think, yeah, it, it undermines this singular narrative that is capitalism is our only option. But if it can sell us anything we want that it scratches any itch the left would need to present itself as having some solution to some desire or even create a desire that it could then solve there must be something that the left can monopolize in terms of desire for it to be able to have a reason to exist in a world of global capitalism i think that i mean at least for for mark fisher that was the sociality of social media capitalism assuming it has a monopoly and sort of seeding that idea out implicitly that, you know, this is how we communicate now. Everyone communicates via phone. You don't send letters. You barely have a landline. Like, if you want to talk, you do it through our platforms. But it's kind of like putting the blinkers on. I guess what I mean when capitalism sort of, it doesn't have the monopoly is that it capitalism actually restricts what we think desire is. 
it restricts I guess you think of it like pornography, for example. I mean, there's been moral panics and also, you know, or very critical books around, you know, what has pornography done to how we understand sexual desire or how we understand sex as it is? And anyone will tell you that the sex that you see in porn isn't sex in real life. But we nevertheless see the suggestion that for, for a lot of teenage boys, that's what sex is. And, it, and that limited perspective damages other people and it has massive consequences. So in a way, it's like, it's as if capitalism more generally has that similar sort of impact. Sells us this thing that we desire, whether that is sex or TVs or whatever else. And it's that, and it's the sort of bombardment of that imagery that makes us understand that that's what we want. When the question is, is, is that all that we want? We think it encapsulates everything, but it doesn't. There's, there, are, there are things that are missed. And I think maybe it's emphasizing what those things are that shows that you know, there's things that aren't accounted for. I guess that's the thing. To actually have some sort of interpersonal intimacy, you know, skin to skin contact, it's true for babies. I think it's true for everybody, no matter what, how old you are. Skin to skin contact is really important. And if we get to this point where we're locked down for a long period of time and we can't have that, does that mean capitalism is going to start? I mean, I think you've all, it's already seen that happen, that there's like gimmicks and novelties where couples can have like long distance touching through these sort of sensory things. What's the poverty of that experience? You know, the fact that actually our, our entire engagement with a lot of technology is now touch based. And, and Mark Fisher has a whole essay on this, this sense of touchscreen capture, that the kind of haptic nature of technology is compensating for the poverty of interpersonal contacts more generally. So is that the mission, to get back in touch with our own desires that can't be, or that you can't buy off Amazon and receive in a box in the post, or that you can't buy as a subscription service? Find the things that we desire which are social, interpersonal, and remember that, you know, not only can capitalism not fulfil these things, but capitalism is actually, it keeps you apart from other people, it keeps you tired, it keeps you, like, working at this desk, and then you go home tired and you can't see your friends. Capitalism is not just, can't sell you it, capitalism stands between you and, a, and a, some of your fundamental desires. Yeah, and I the, think so. And I guess the desire of other people, seeing other people, it's pretty much sky high, record levels of desiring <laughs> yeah. to see and spend time with other people. It's a great time to be pushing that. I don't know how it feels to you, but sometimes I feel like a lot of the older generations have a different relationship with friendship. There just seems to be so many, when I was growing up, so many people's parents didn't seem to have friends. And I was terrified of hitting a point where I didn't have friends. Is this ringing any bells with you? Just older people who are, I'm like, who are their friends? Yeah, no, totally. But like, to me, my friends are so important that I've started hating their jobs. You got to that point where you hate your friend's job? Mm. And it's like, you're in some sort of abusive relationship with this job because <laughs> it's worse for you than poverty. Poverty is not as bad for you as this job is bad for you. And so that kind of puts, pits your desire just to have a healthy relationship with other human beings against capitalism's not relationship with you, but relationship with your friends, relationship with your parents, because getting a job is just asking to be ill in a specific way. And you don't want to see that happen to your friends. Yeah. Oh, no, totally. I think that's the, that's been the biggest thing for me is of being in lockdown that I've like taken, I think after 10 years of working in the arts in some respects, I lost my job right at the start of lockdown. And I've just taken that as a cue to just try being self-employed, mm. just kind of through necessity in one sense. But my mental health's been the best it's ever been since I first like had my first job. And every job that I've had has always been like accompanied by... If not, a, if not an explicit breakdown, at least a definite deterioration in mental health. Well, just take it from me. The self-employment breakdown <laughs> takes a while to build up, but it, <laughs> it 
it's hard. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. I guess if saying saying if I've reached the point of like, um, yeah, is 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 my well. I think my I think my friends think about me that my new self employed status is bad for me. Also, I guess it's another point that I think Mark Fisher makes in one of his lectures. Right, that if you want to know what post work looks like. We can kind of look at the Beatles when they were at their most success. When they stopped doing live tours, they didn't have to work anymore. And then they started doing all this weird stuff. And then we're even more successful. You see a lot of the, the glimmers of what post-world society looks like in our big cultural celebrities that don't have to work and mm. keep doing stuff. Because we start at the very beginning. The left can't be a negative project of just resisting capitalism because that's no fun, no one cares, and no one's going to get like stirred up about it. Left needs to have a positive conception. When we start thinking about work, it kind of brings up how much capitalism's just a negative conception. We're not involved in capitalism because we've got a positive conception of buying stuff. We're involved in it because we need to pay the rent. We, we need yeah. to afford water coming out the taps. We're coerced by a negative conception just as much there. But hanging out, that's all free. Got that on tap. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Wow, turns out the revolution's just going to be made by hanging out with friends. <laughs> Let me tell you, I came into this chat really pessimistic, but I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> I think that's totally true. It's the thing is that it's, it sounds really superficial, but that's when all of this important stuff happens. Like if we, if you go to the pub with your mates, you can be there having some drinks and then you start talking like you start organizing or you start raising each other's consciousness of where we are. And so I think it's literally true that the revolution comes from hanging out with the mates and, and the depressing side of it, to, if just to throw that back anyway, so we can end on maybe some, a little glimmer of depression in there. It's horrible to realise how, yeah, well, as you were saying about jobs, right, how much of an imposition is put on just hanging out with people. Yeah. Maybe it sounds somewhat conspiratorial, but I think that's intentional. I think there's, the, the, there's another anecdote that Mark Fisher gives in his lectures where he talks about being a teacher and going out for some sort of post-work drinks. And talking about just doing the inevitable. If you if you work in an office and you go for drinks afterwards, every every post work drinks is talking about your situation at work, like where mm. you can talk freely and openly about how it's going with your colleagues. And I think they had he had like some sort of HR person there and was like, no, you can't you can't talk about this in the pub. It's like, well, where else are you supposed to talk about it? You mm. can't put that imposition on those kinds of conversations. But capitalism does try to i think as a generation that never really got to grow up because we never got our houses we've just ended up having friends for ages when <laughs> the life script is like you stop having friends at a certain point you have occasional dinner meals with colleagues and you're married and that's your friend that's your friend and yeah. you hate them <laughs> <laughs> but we've all grown up and we've just stayed at friends and i think that's changed our outlook on like sociality because i'm not giving up having friends ever Having friends, yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm saying 101 simple stuff here, but having friends <laughs> is really good. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's that's that's it's another one of those things that arguably capitalism has produced for itself despite itself. Mm. You know, we can look at the fact that more people now sort of what is it between 20 and 40 live communally, live with friends than ever yeah. before. That's 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 because we've got a shit housing market. But the other side is we all get to live with our friends. Mm. So it's like that 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 playoff is is not ideal. It gives us more opportunity to actually emphasise the good things about yeah the social and the communal. And I feel that goes part way to answering some of those big questions then about what the left can provide, what the motivation is, and I guess some of the things that are going to be important to what these new ideas are for motivating people in the future. Yeah. 
that's it. The, the, you know, that's what I kind of, I suppose that's what I mean by saying that the left has to take more credit for what it's already got. In a way, they are imposed upon us. That, you know, the ideals of, of a previous generation would not have been to live with friends into, you know, whatever, the, your 30s and 40s or whatever. That would have been seen as being a failure. And to some extent that we still retain that anxiety, but maybe because there's not really any other option, we see the beauty in it. That's a positive because it breaks down that previous ideal that was arguably pretty, you know, the, the, there's no such thing as society, just individuals and families. And forgetting the other kinds of society that we live in. I guess it's like we live in a society as a meme. We kind of did forget that that was the case for a long time. Mm. People take the mick out of it because it sounds so hollow and doesn't mean anything. But actually, I think the fact that we live in a society means a lot. And it's a good foundation. Sort of recognising what that actually means is really important. I think that's a good note to end on, actually. That sounds... <laughs> that sounds great. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. Thanks again to our guest, Matt Cahoon. You can find him on Twitter at Xenogothic or on the regular internet at xenogothic.com where you can find a great essay about Mr. Blobby. Thanks for listening and for everyone who supports us on social media and in the review section on iTunes. You're the real mandatory redistribution party. Now, if you'll excuse me, it's bin day, so it's time for me to load up a cheeky schlur. Good night and goodbye.